Ladies and gentlemen, the spectacular Spider-Man! Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. Otto Octavius was weak. Call me Dr. Octopus! From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Welcome back to Spectacular Radio. I'm Zach Joyner, and as always, I am joined by the friendly neighborhood host of this show, of this show Greg Wachanski. Greg? Hello, everyone. Who we got this month? Oh, hello. Well, this month, rejoining us for the first time in a couple of years now is Samuel, who does the graphics for the podcast. So we thank him for that. He pretty so. No worries. Yeah, thank you for. Good to be back. <laughs> yeah, thank you for putting us up, Samuel. It is always appreciated. Kristen is joining us once again. Hey, guys. And honoring us with his presence as usual, and I'm surprised he keeps doing it, Mr. Greg Wiseman, the supervising producer and story editor of the series. Hi. Glad to be here. And joining us for the first time, speaking of surprises, gracing us with our presence, a man who is a legend at this point as far as I'm concerned, the voice director of the series and so many other, as IMDb pages as long as the phone book, Mr. Jamie Thomason. <laughs> Hey, everybody. How you doing? We're doing great. And Jamie, thank you so much for for joining us. It is an honor to have you here. I mean, I've been, if you don't mind me saying so, I've been a fan of your work for even longer than I can remember at this point. I mean, um, you're the first voice director that I've ever truly been aware of. And your profession, what you do, is su- you're such an unsung hero towards toward these series mm-hmm. and, other, and other voice directors as well who... People don't really talk about voice directors and the job that they do and how irreplaceable they are to a TV series. Uh, yes, you're right. They don't. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Bye, guys. And just the second you ask me a question, people are walking by. Yeah, they don't because uh, most of them don't even know that it exists. I didn't even know the job existed until I started doing it, pretty much. And uh, we always ask our new guests their superhero origin story. How did you get into the business what was your career path oh it is a superhero story to be sure uh there was a radioactive uh microphone that no it's um i was uh working with um a bunch of comedians robin williams and billy crystal and david letterman and woody allen and a bunch of folks like that and one of the folks that we worked with was uh martin short and marty was doing a show at hanna-barbera back uh in the stone age called The Misadventures of Ed Greenlee. So I was interacting with their casting department a bunch. And uh, they, uh, at Hanna-Barbera, they needed a new you know, person there in their department. And, uh, you know, they were going to pay me, I think, $50 more a week, and I couldn't say no to that kind of scratch back then. So anyway... I switched from live action uh, over into animation. And for a, a moment in time, I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? What have I done? And uh, I ended up loving it. Just a, just a great, fun, you know, 
industry of its own, attached to the larger now, industry, and uh, had a great time. And now it's just the rest of us who go, what have you done? What have you done? Yeah, I get that a lot. Anyway, so, yeah, so I worked at Hanna-Barbera for a little bit. And then um, Disney was, uh, they'd been freelancing all this stuff out. And they, for whatever reason, had heard something about me and called and asked if I wanted to start their uh, department, build a department there uh, at Disney Animation. And I thought, yeah, awesome. So they did what Disney does best and, you know, hire someone young and eager and pay them a dollar fifty more an hour than they were making. And uh, all they did was build the department by myself for a couple of years and then it uh, went from there. Ended up being great. And I got to work with, among other people, folks like uh, Greg Weissman, who back then, Greg Weissman was... Uh, the executive in charge of development before he transitioned over into finally producing his own uh, fantastic stuff. A little thing called Gargoyles that a couple of you might have heard about. No, I've never heard of that. I know nothing about it. Except for the fact that my daughter's named Angel after Demona. No, I've never heard of it. Dude, how hot is that? <laughs> and it, it, hot, it's disturbing. You named your, you named your daughter, do you call her Demona when she's bad? Yeah, you know, from a couple moments, because I couldn't get Demona past my husband, nor my family, who's religious. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going with Angel. That's, that's my alternative. And I still got... I got of the night. Oh, that's what my husband calls me. <laughs> you see? And does, he so that's it, how... does he say it with that, with that uh, you know, greedy tear in his eye? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> so I, I, I got that in. I absolutely got that in. It's like, well, you call me this. I mean, let's call her Angel. Well, I'm thinking internally, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get it, I'm gonna get it. Yes. <laughs> and the rest awesome. is history, as they say. And yes, I, I look at her sometimes. And I'm like, I really should have named you Demona because you are so acting it right now. <laughs> See, then you can just think that to, to yourself quietly. But it's not like you were trying to name her, you know, Goliath or Lexington or something like that. Angel. Angel's a beautiful name. For a beautiful young lady, I'm certain. Uh, she's a doll when she's behaving, and other times I'm like, oh, dear God, what did I do? Those other times are just there so you can appreciate the angelic doll times. Oh, absolutely. But I am being the ultimate distraction. <laughs> uh -oh. No, it's all right. But yeah, you two, have, you two have been working together a lot. I mean, I remember when Greg got the Spectacular Experiment gig, and then I found out you were going to be voice directing it because I was a fan of that show that I just said that I never heard of. I was excited because I <laughs> knew what you could do, and I've been seeing, and I've been watching cartoons with your name in the credits for so many years. I remember, oh, Disney's Hercules. Hey, Jamie Thomason. Cool. Yeah, I mean, if it was Disney, anything for about sixteen years, then it was, then it was me. But um, yeah, Spider Man came around at a good time because I had uh, finally left Disney and was freelance. So that was uh, was awesome, and it really is. I mean, one of the absolute, you know, best professional experiences of my life, and just one of the best, you know, shows, one of the best productions I've ever worked on. And not for nothing, that's saying something. I've worked on a few things over the years and um, 
you know, it's just it's a real standout. Anything with Greg is a standout. Not always for positive reasons, but we're not going to go into that. <laughs> go into it. Go into it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Greg is uh, Greg's the best. Greg is not known for doing, um, uh, you know, simple light. He doesn't do dumb shows. Even if they started out dumb before he was there, they they uh, get uh, smarted up, but quick. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, Jamie, we will cycle back to you at some point. Greg, this episode brings back the Sandman, this episode First Steps, and um, you begin what looks like to be a redemption arc here, or am I misreading it? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, at the time in the comics, uh, Sandman had been going through some changes, I don't haven't been keeping up recently, so I don't know exactly where the character is these days. But uh, he's still a bad guy. It's okay. But um, we had some long-term plans for Sandman, uh, and uh, this was the first steps on those plans. See how it all tied together, just in that last minute. And um, this is a question that both of you can answer. <laughs> I mean, John DiMaggio is so great in this. There are long scenes in this where he, as Hammerhead and as Sandman, are having these long stretches of dialogue with each other, and you wouldn't tell it's the same actor. Is there a... I mean, Jamie, I mean, how, how do you direct a scene like that? Well, I don't want to take all the credit for it, but, you know, no, DiMaggio is DiMaggio's amazing. Um, you know, that kind of thing happens all the time in uh, TV animation, um, but there are a few people that can do it um, as sort of uh, flawlessly and, and seamlessly as uh, as DiMaggio. He's uh, he's really a genuinely a remarkable talent. Um, one of the things that uh, and it might be harder to appreciate, you know, just watching the episode, but both of those uh, characters that he's doing, both of those voices are um, in and of themselves sort of delicate, you know, acts in that um, they're charactery, but they're also played really straight. So there's, again, the sort of delicate balance of having a kind of a charactery voice, but playing it, you know, very genuinely, you know, most of the time. And, and uh, so to be able to do that with each of those characters individually, and then as they're speaking to each other and, and just sort of seamlessly switching back and forth. Uh, honestly, it's, uh, I was there and was impressed watching him do it. <laughs> you know, um, uh, there are very few actors who, who could pull it off as um, sort of flawlessly with such a fine level of uh, nuance as, uh, as DiMaggio. Um, and in giving direction, you know, uh, for a scene like that, it's like I say, it happens all the time in TV animation where you know people are playing multiple characters, then they end up speaking to themselves. Um, and sometimes you know you'll do you know you'll do the whole scene with just one of the characters, and you'll do the whole scene with just the other character. And then sometimes some people you know will go back and forth, but lots of direct you know uh, them very differently. But in this, uh, you know, it just went through it like I was just talking to two different actors and just giving giving Hammerhead, you know, direction, and then Sandman direction, and Hammerhead direction, and Sandman direction, and then he just, without even, you know, trying, just uh, seamlessly and 
incorporate all the direction with all the sort of, you know, beautiful nuance that you pray for normally. DiMaggio doesn't know how to not be really good. He's just a really gifted guy. Indeed. Did it answer a question? Was there a question? I don't remember. <laughs> no, it definitely answers the question. Yeah, I've been a fan of DiMaggio ever since I first watched him as Bender on Futurama, so the man is just terrific. Dude, you can interview him sometime. Ask him about his old stand-up days. <laughs> I, oh, I, oh, we would love to. We would love to. Oh, man. Yes. Yes, we would. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, he's remarkable. Yeah, and something similar happens in the next episode following this with a... Darren Norris is both J. J. Jonah Jameson and John Jameson, so I'm really looking forward to covering that one. And and that's another one, I can tell you, that's another one, because he's playing his own father and son, so the voices are meant to have, you know, some sort of biological connection, and yet still have to feel like two very separate, distinct, you know, uh, people and characters, and um, yeah, and Darren's Darren's awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love when that happens, especially when they're the same voice in a different show entirely. You've got Keith David with the same voice that sound like two very different people back in the Gargoyles days when he played his own clone. <laughs> um, and, and Keith's uh, voice is somewhat, how you say, distinct, somewhat <laughs> recognizable. So um, that's, uh, you know, any separation here, there's I just 100% um, you know, acting based as opposed to, you know, um, audio sound based, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And Greg, I think we're going to shoot one your way. There's a, an interesting revelation in this, and I recall you commenting on it further and asked Greg, we find out that Peter and Flash used to be friends back in nursery school. Yep. Um, Peter gave Flash his nickname, gave Eugene Thompson his nickname. Yeah, I, I love that bit. I mean, there, I've seen other origins for the Flash nickname that aren't what you would expect them to be. Um, there was one in... Uh... Brand New Day, yeah. uh, Mark Guggenheim, we're looking at you. <laughs> I was just thinking about that one. That's not. I personally <laughs> love this one, though. This is just too freaking adorable. I mean, it translates to kids. It's hysterical to adults. I, I think this one is actually really well done. We had a lot of issues about that little photograph of four-year-old Flash um, that was in the show and getting that flower that blocks your view of his butt. <laughs> yes, the mandatory right. flower. <laughs> in, in other words, they needed enough there so that we could get it past S&P, but if it was too much, then you wouldn't be able to get the joke. You know, if it completely blocked everything, it would just look like he was wearing pants. Um, so we needed that. There was a lot of negotiation over that flower. <laughs> <laughs> well, it paid its, it paid dividends there, uh, Mr. Wiseman. Yeah, we so, got it. Go on, Zach. So it certainly paid dividends. Yeah, we ended up with a really great moment there. And um, But what got me was, and this is a post you made and asked Greg a number of years ago while the show was still airing, Aaron, you, you mentioned that there was a larger reason there that about why Flash and uh, Peter stopped being friends, and it wasn't just because Peter was a nerd and Flash became a jock. You, and I asked Greg, you talked about this uh, issue with Flash not being able to comprehend the whole deal with Peter's parents dying while Flash's father worked as a police officer. Yeah, um, that was my sort of take on it, that the real reason that 
Flash and Peter had stopped being friends as children was because of the death of Peter's parents, and that was a very scary thing to um, young Flash, um, young Eugene, um, and if it was just random, then it could happen to him, particularly because his dad was a cop, um, but if it was because Peter's a jerk, then he deserved it. Now, I'm not saying that's an attitude that 17-year-old Flash would still have, um, but it's so internalized and ingrained that getting past that is going to be tough for him. But again, we always sort of viewed our show as a little bit of a prologue to the larger Spider-Man mythos. And of course, anyone who's read much Spider-Man knows that though they still have tension here and there, Peter and Flash have evolved into being good friends. And so for me, that idea that they were friends once, it sort of wasn't great during uh, their, you know, tweens and teens. Um, but that ultimately, you know, when Peter needed a talking to, Flash was there to do it. Ultimately, Flash is a decent guy who won't, cheat uh, at football, who won't, who does the right thing more times than not, and who is fairly heroic when push comes to shove in his own way. Um, all that, to me, is leads into the kind of guy that you can believe down the road Peter could be friends with. I mean, if Flash was just a complete jerk, um then there's nothing down the road that would make, even if Flash chills out some, there's nothing that would make Pete want to be friends with it. But I felt that the history and the fact that every once in a while you see this other side to Flash um, mattered. I mean, I, I love Flash's birthday party theme general. It's just outrage after outrage after outrage for poor Flash. <laughs> and you got to imagine that watching all those videos that his mom was collecting during the uh, party after the fact would not be a great experience for Flash. Um, and, you know, one of the things about this little mini arc that runs from our uh, the second season, fifth, sixth, and seventh episode, is they all have these framing devices in them. So... Um, so we uh, tried to do that here with the um, with those video segments, and I think they worked pretty darn well. Um, and right down to the last one with Eddie being pretty chilling, I think, given that it's just Eddie standing there with a soda can and talking to a video in the middle of a party, it still winds up being pretty chilling. Oh, yeah, and you can tell he's got Simbi back at that point. No, he doesn't. Oh. That's flashing back. That's from the party. He, he was gone from the party by that time. So uh, just like the early videos took place before the party, that last <laughs> one took place uh, during the party 
Uh, I mean, that the early video clips that you were seeing were from the party, but we showed them earlier in the episode. And that last one was also from the party, but we showed it at the end. But they're all from the party. All the video clips are from the party. And, of course, by the time he got the symbiote back, sometime you know, after he starts hammering through the concrete. So uh, he, he didn't have it back yet when he said it, but he was sure confident that he was going to get it. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciated a lot of the segue where basically Peter was actually questioning his own mind because he kept thinking he was having hallucinations of, is Eddie there? Is Eddie not there? What's happening? Am I dealing with the symbiote and Venom again? I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things we did to sort of keep that edge to it is that you have that one moment when he's looking at Harry and he sees Green Goblin. And that is just a hallucination. Not a hallucination is too strong, but you know, a momentary "oh crap" reminder moment. So if he can do that with Green Goblin, maybe that's what he's doing with Eddie and with Venom. Um, and that was our attempt to sort of keep the audience guessing about all this. One of the things that I think is also sort of cool is when you do finally see Eddie at the construction site, and he's wearing just a homemade Venom costume, which, if you were saw him from close up, would never fool you for a second. But from a distance, which is the only time you let Peter see him in that costume, it looked real enough. And so I like that moment, too. Speaking of that scene there, there's a weird bit where it looks like Eddie has a weapon? Uh, it's just a rope. Okay, there's a kind of a thwip sound thing, and then Peter just swung off. Maybe that was what I was hearing. Uh, Sam, let's uh, let's have you kind of. You've been kind of yeah, quiet. Sure. No, sorry, I was just enjoying all the commentary. I mean, um, well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this episode is because the Sandman is one of my favorite characters from the Spider-Man uh, uh, what's it lineup. Not one of my favorite villains. But my favorite characters. I love his progression from uh, villain to hero. In fact, uh, Marvel Two in One eighty six is probably one of my favorite issues of like the the eighties. And I loved how Tom Starker kind of built him into this heroic character. And I have to give you a lot of compliments, Greg. I feel this is the most authentic adaptation of those emotions because I know they've tried to do it before in the movie and in other shows but i feel this is the most authentic genuine attempt to really rehabilitate him so i kind of want to ask uh why did you decide to kind of bring the storyline to the screen and what kind of direction you had with it going forward if you could have done more with it um it seemed right for the character i mean one of the Things about, like, for example, the Rhino-Sandman partnership is that Rhino really hates Spider-Man's guts and is more driven by that. But Flint was really in it for the money, for his big score. And Spider-Man kept thwarting him, so he didn't have any love for Spider-Man. But it wasn't, you know... For Flint, vengeance was a sucker's game. He told that to um, Hammerhead the first episode where he became Sandman. Um, it wasn't really what he was interested in. 
And so mayhem and stuff like that wasn't really the point. If it got him his way, if it got him that big score, sure, he was willing to do it, but he wasn't trying to pollute the ocean or kill it, you know, a crew full of people or any of that stuff. And, you know, we sort of show that moment at the beach, which Hammerhead sort of calls him on and he has to cover about, which is when he helps that little girl who's named Aaron after my daughter. Um, uh, you know, shame those teenagers who are being jerks to her with this giant, magnificent sandcastle. And there are all these references to Mr. Sandman and the next up, a song by the Cordettes and stuff like that. It's sort of like, okay, this guy doesn't have to be a negative force, but, you know, he's still Flint Marco. So, like, one of my other favorite lines in the episode is um, Spider-Man for a second thinks in the museum, thinks that Flint may actually want to be a hero. And so he goes, well, yeah, with great power comes great. And then instead of responsibility, Flint says gullibility. <laughs> and it's just a great combo performance between Josh and John there. Um, no, I love that scene. It was it was great. The, the banter between them was, was really good. good stuff. So, you know, it, it, it's fun. Uh, what you have to sort of buy into, I guess, I think it works pretty well in the episode, is that even though Flint claims all he wants is the big score, all these little things are adding up for him. The thing in the museum, the girl, all this stuff. So that by the time... Spider-Man gets him to look around at the havoc he's causing. Um, suddenly you get a guy who realizes, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm one of the bad guys. Yeah, sure, because I want money. But I'm not trying to murder 100 people. Um, and I sure as hell don't want to blow up half of, you know, uh, Queens. Um, you know, so he makes a, what we, uh, it didn't quite play. The one thing that didn't play as well for me as I hoped, I think it's just too quick upon it. I wanted the audience to think for a little bit that Sandman might be dead. And when he came back, I wanted him to feel weakened. So what I, I think what was scripted originally, which we just weren't able to pull off or didn't have the right time with, was this idea that uh, we'd seen a giant Sandman. I wanted to see a little tiny Sandman that, like, was just a tiny, uh, almost, you know, Lego-sized Sandman um, that was all the sand he could manage to put together after what he had been through and just sort of show that, okay, he's still alive at the end. But I wanted this feeling like he had made the ultimate sacrifice for a second. And I just don't think enough time passes for the audience to even register that um, he's dead before we reveal that he's alive. And when he's alive, it's just him. So there's no sense of sacrifice there um, like what I was hoping for. But uh, So that's the one thing in the episode when I was re-watching it last night that I just was like, it didn't quite come out... Uh, the way I was hoping, but the rest of it, I'm pretty proud of. I think it, it turned out pretty great. It, it was still, it's like, 
Gum, Shami? It doesn't matter. Go ahead. So it's still a really cool moment, at, anyway, at least I always thought it was. And I like that you played fair with the audience. He didn't try to pretend that he was dead t- till the episode was over and then shock us later with his return, the way a lot of comic books seem to do when they mm-hmm. kill characters off permanently, quote-unquote, this time. Yeah, you know, I, I, part of it is um, S&P concerns. Um, you know, the, I don't know about the kids, but the executives need to demonstrate that the character's not dead. But really for me, a lot of it's what you just said, which is that you just get tired of the pretense that this character's dead. You know, I, I get tired of, yeah, yeah, he's dead. Sure, he's dead. I believe you, because it's never true. And so for me, if I'm going to if I, I don't kill characters off lightly because when I do, they're dead. Um, and so for me, it, it's sort of important to, um, like you said, play a little fair, just sort of let's not pretend for very long. But I did want to fool people for a few minutes, you know. Um, and I just think the way the episode structured out, the way it timed out, I didn't quite get enough time of people going, whoa, they just killed off Sandman before he came back. In fact, he comes back so soon that um, there's pretty much no way that anyone thought that for even a second, um, which I think is too bad. But not tragic, just, uh, oh, well, didn't yeah. quite work. Almost now, worked. Didn't work. Was that somewhat influenced by the fact, that, did you guys know at this point that season three wasn't happening? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think we knew for sure until after we were done. That, um, yeah, that's you know, I think we had, we had hopes that it would come back for a third season. We felt pretty good about um, our ratings on Kids WB had been huge. Um, not huge relative to like the 90s or anything, but, um, but, of the but time, huge relative huge. to that time. Um, and, uh, so, and we were going on Disney XD, we didn't know what they were going to do with the show exactly, so we had high hopes that we would be back, and we certainly had a plan for, I think I've talked about this on the show before, we had a plan for five seasons, and for, um, that were taken through his high school career, and then DVDs afterwards to deal with the college years, we had at least that much figured out, at least in general terms. So I don't think we knew, um, but I don't think while we were making season two, I don't think, I mean, we didn't feel like we had a guarantee of a third season. I don't want to make it sound like, oh yeah, they told us we had a third season, then they took it away. They never told us that. We just felt like, you know, there was a decent chance that we'd get a third season, and so we planned accordingly. Um, But we always, you know, I planned... Every show I do, I never know whether there's going to be a pickup for an additional season. So I always end a season with what we call open-ended closure. Um, in other words, you close off the plot lines for that season, but you leave lots of threads to pick up on if and when you get to a, an additional season. And that was always going to be the plan for season two. And that didn't change. And it didn't change in part because, again, we didn't know the answer, but in part because we wouldn't have changed it anyway. 
But uh, when I'm we sorry. were still making it, all, all indications were that, I mean, the ratings were great and they were only growing. The reviews were fantastic. You know, the fan response was uh, amazing, due in no small part to people like you guys. Um, and, uh, and not only that, I had worked with Stan uh, Lee on, um, on well, worked with him a few times, but this particular thing was a, one of the Spider-Man video games. And the, the praise that Stan gave this show specifically and directly um, was uh, heartwarming, you know, but, but it was almost sort of staggering. Um, I'd worked with him a few times, and on this particular day for this video game, and I said, hey, Stan, you know, and he said, uh, oh, wait, well, Jamie, Jamie, what, what, we worked on something recently. What did we work on? Because he, you know, does a cameo and everything. Um, and I told him that it was, you know, this show. And, and his eyes lit up. One of the greatest, you know, filmic adaptations of Spider-Man of everything, all the movies, all the everything. I mean, he was, and he went on and on about it. Um, and uh, I, I remember that really well for a variety of reasons, but not the least of which, as it applies to this uh, story, is that uh, the timing of it is it connected to the thought about whether or not we, you know, were going to be picked up for another season. Um, Every indication uh, was that, you know, they'd be crazy not to. Um, and it just had to do with uh, the conflagration of uh, uh, business. Um, yeah, the perfect storm. You know, <laughs> yeah, it just, uh, you know, you, they can either start a new one, which they would have, which they would own completely, or they could continue this one and have to pay, you know, three other people you know, for uh, different rights. So uh, that uh, pretty much took care of it. But if nothing else, Stanley loves it. Well, if you got standstill approval there, uh, Greg, I think, I think you won. <laughs> yeah. Well, when Stan it, the man says it's the best, it's the best. Uh, Stan has always been great. Uh, great to me specifically. I mean, he, wrote a blurb for my first novel. He's just, uh, you know, uh, always an inspiration to me. I, I don't pretend to know him really well, but every interaction I've had with him has just been a pleasure. Uh, and, uh, I'm, you know, it was fun having him do a voice for the show. We talked about this a few episodes ago. Um, and uh, having him come in, and it was just a treat in every way. Well, he's so great. He's just like a big... Big kid and always wears the exact same green sweater. But that's beside the point. That is <laughs> true. I've, I've seen him a couple times at conventions. That is very, very true. He yeah. loves that sweater. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Kristen, do you have any questions? Well, not necessarily about the episode, but more about um, uh, Jamie's body of work. I've been looking through a lot of it now. Go for I it. I am utterly impressed, I admit. Um, I've noticed you've done an array of, you know, television series, a couple movies, a couple video games. Um, what's the differences in processes trying to direct between the three? Well, I wish that were uh, there were only three uh, differences. <laughs> Each one of those. Um, you know, I mean, I've done, I don't know how many, I've done like about 3,000 episodes of TV, I've done about 80 plus movies, and I don't even know how many video games. But um, with the video games in particular, um, but you know, with, the, with everything, 
I've been doing this for 150 years, and you know, this technology has grown from you know stone etchings to you know where we are today. So that technology also you know changes the process. I remember um, on uh, Gargoyles, which was the first you know show uh, they did that Greg you know, created and ran. Um, we do a ton of um, uh, sort of intricate dialogue editing um, that, generally speaking, you know, doesn't get done a lot on um, television series because it takes a lot of time and television series tend to be moving pretty quickly. But stuff that I do now that's really quick and easy to do on Pro Tools where, you know, listen to you know, 40 different takes and take little pieces, take this word from that and that cough from there and this giggle from, you know, a different scene entirely or whatever and weave them all together. We were doing that kind of thing, or trying to anyway, way back on Gargoyles, where they were cutting with uh, something called a razor blade, um, and they were cutting something called uh, celluloid, specifically mag stock. Um, <laughs> back, uh, uh, these things were, uh, these, uh, they used to call these things films because they were made on film. Um, and uh, back then, you know, it was old-fashioned world with like, you know, market a film with grease pencil and you cut, you know, with the razor blade on the bias and you, if you had to try to blend something, they'd use the side of the razor blade to kind of shave off some of the, um, what's the magnetic material that carries the sound anyway. Um, so that's really hard to do in any case. Back then, very hard was difficult to do. Now with Pro Tools, you know, you can cut basically infinitely. I mean, they used to say the 40,000th of a second, but now it's basically infinitely. Um, so uh, in terms of the process, that's how it differs uh, between television or movies or video games or whatever, um, it's somewhat less about uh, whether or not it's uh, a video game or a movie or a TV and more about sort of the, the style of the piece, uh, largely, if that makes sense. Um, well, but there's, Jamie, there's also the difference between ensemble records ensemble. and, Correct. and uh, single actor at a time right. kind of thing. Correct. Um, and so that's one of the things that i uh, just about to talk about in TV specifically. Um, you know, we do a lot of ensemble record. And in movies, uh, for example, very, very rarely. In video games, usually not any big ensemble, but maybe sometimes a couple of people in a row. Um, and do you guys know what we're talking about when I say ensemble records? That's when you have, uh, you know, six, eight, ten actors, or on one of Greg's shows, you know, 25 actors in the booth simultaneously. And they're yeah. all sitting there. Yeah. Come on now. This yeah. episode we're talking about here only had 15. <laughs> it, was one, it, was, it was one of the very sparse one of the very sparse <laughs> I was going to say I, I know a little bit about it only because um, I've done stage acting where we've had to pre-record our voices you know some Great. in a group some separately so I get the idea of what you're talking about so perfect and let me put it in uh, a, a context that uh, you would be able to, most people would be able to re relate to better so um, the difference between acting on stage right uh, versus acting for like a one camera drama, right? Where you're out on location, just one camera versus like, um, they used to call it three camera. You know, it's like five to seven camera, uh, like sitcom acting, you know? So you're on a stage and you're sort of acting in kind of a proscenium sort of setting. 
um, but there are multiple cameras at multiple angles, right? So you let's pretend it's the same. Uh, if you're doing Hamlet or whatever, or a Neil Simon play or something, same scene, right? The same scene. You're doing it on stage, or you're doing it in a sitcom, or you're doing it in one uh, camera, you know, drama. Um, the way, as an actor, the way that you portray that exact same role, same speech, whatever, in those different mediums is going to vary slightly, right? Um, even on stage, are you in a little small black box? Are you doing it in the round? Or are you doing it, you know, uh, whatever, at the uh, contagious or something, you know, with, where it has to be huge and they need to hear and see and understand the back row, um, right? You, you, those different styles of the piece, um, you know, determine how, uh, how you play that same scene, you know, differently. Right. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. I mean, between doing, uh, you know, as stage acting and I've also did a lot of chorus and we would have to adjust a lot of how we would do things based upon, you know, the stage that we were on, whether we had a shell open-ended, I completely understand where you're going with that. Cool. So then that, um, is the context that most people understand, and that's the context that actually led your question. Like, what's the difference between doing it for a movie or for a TV or for a video game? The difference in voiceover is, in all of those different uh, mediums, what's the same is you're always sitting right in front of a mic, right? You're always right there. So I can whisper, uh, you know, or do really tiny things, and it doesn't matter if it's a movie or a TV show or a video game or whatever. So the difference in... Um, in voiceover performance, you know, in animation, um, again, for feature films or television or video games, is more the style of the piece. That's what varies more. So, so if it's, you know, what kind of comedy versus what kind of drama versus what kind of action, that sort of, uh, you know, those things become kind of the tail that wags the dog. That said, the most tangible, you know, difference is what Greg pointed out. Um, in the super broadest of strokes, TV, we do a lot of ensemble stuff, bunch of actors in there interacting with each other, which is just a great way to go. Movies, almost always, you know, the opposite, very rarely ensemble, almost always individually. Um, you know, particularly, uh, in this world of, uh, you know, celebrities doing, uh, portraying roles for, for features. Um, so whatever ensemble versus you know uh, singular actors is a easy tangible uh, difference between them but most of the difference really becomes uh, determined by the style of the piece if that makes sense so Greg's shows for example let's say our, you know, for Spider-Man right Spider-Man versus Gargoyles right Gargoyles had um, a lot more uh, sort of uh, there was a lot of quiet, silent space, a lot of, um, you know, dramatic, uh, more sort of uh, heavy dramatic acting going on. Um, you know, a lot, uh, a lot more sort of whispers from the shadows, that sort of thing. Stuff where you can literally whisper in a way that you can't, for example, on stage or something. Um, Spider-Man, uh, broader stuff, you know, with more fun, um, both, even if they were both recorded ensemble, right? They're two very different styles. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you're going with a much more serious to, you know, something, you know, you're dealing with school-aged kids. It's a bit more dramatic, a bit more vibrant, if you will, versus the calm, quiet. Right. I mean, one uh, there's um, one of uh, my colleagues that is fond of um, talking about um, uh, animation acting as um, being very animated, and which in much of the time, in many regards, that is the case. Um, but uh, what it really, I mean, what it really means is that it's there's stuff you can do in animation, there's stuff that you can do in that level of um, of uh, voice acting that is hard to get a, away with in, in other mediums. Um, and again, even though a lot of stuff, you know, like the first show I ever worked on, way back when I said the Marty Short was doing Ed Grimley at Hanna Bear, I showed up to Hanna Bear my first day, and they're recording the Smurfs. And <laughs> walk in, and it's, you know, like mayhem. And, it, you know, you're yelling, and everything was big, and all this stuff. Um, and, you know, that was TV animation ensemble record, just like Spider-Man, just like Gargoyles, just like, you know, whatever, Batman animated series. But those are all very different styles. So it's less about the, the medium um, as it is the specific style of, of the piece. The level of sort of really, you know, like nuanced stuff um, that we get to do uh, in a lot of the, the good animation, you know, the good animated projects I get to work on. Uh, is fantastic. And it's, you know, stuff that, again, you just rarely get a chance to do in in uh, a lot of mediums. And I've been really blessed to get to do it a lot. <laughs> so um, I'm pretty sure I didn't answer a question, but uh, Actually, you were you were pretty <laughs> concise, and I, I was able to follow you quite well. So you okay. really did actually answer my question. But Don't wait, humor the guy! Hey, I'm as honest as the day is long. Excuse you. Uh, I like great. I actually um, have a question actually about. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I have a question regarding your directing. Actually, Jamie, when I was looking at your um, history, I noticed that while you were at Disney, you directed the Double of Spirited Away, correct? And I just kind of wondered um, because you're one of the few directors to do um, pre-recorded television and then anime dubbing, which is very different. How was that experience for you? Because people love the Ghibli films, and you know, what's it like to be involved in such a big project, which even at the time would have been quite big, I assume. Sam, I love you for asking um, that. <laughs> that's a, it's a, that's a very, it was a very particular experience. That particular one, which, well, I can't go into all of it. I will just say it was done very, very quickly. Um, uh, Tom Schumacher pulled me aside. It was at a meeting about um, Mulan sequels, I recall. And uh, he pulled me aside and said, hey, uh, you know, we had this uh, Miyazaki film. And Disney had, had you know, several uh, Miyazaki uh, films that, you know, we were dubbing into English. Um, but, and this was somewhere, maybe like the third or fourth one or something like that. But he pulled me aside and long story short said, hey, we have to do this thing, uh, Spirited Away. Um, it just beat, uh, I think it was maybe The Empire Strikes Back as uh, the biggest uh, film in uh, Japan, whatever, in cinematic history in Japan or whatever. So it was this huge thing and blah, 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 blah. Uh, but we need to have it in the theaters. In, and it was something ridiculous. 
I want to say six weeks. I did, we did the whole thing in six weeks, I think. I think it was actually in theaters like in eight weeks or something just crazy like that. And I, again, can't go into all the details of why. But at first I thought he was joking. You know, I thought he was just busting my chops. And then I realized, oh, oh, no, you're serious. You mean six weeks. You do, you, the whole thing needs to be done in six weeks. And I don't mean casting it. I mean casting it, recording it, editing it, mixing it, done in six weeks. Uh, so that was a very particular experience where we were just shot out of a cannon. Um, and, uh, you know, the good news about that, uh, we'll call it uh, accelerated uh, production schedule, um, is that there wasn't uh, a lot of time for a bunch of second guessing and that sort of thing. So we really just uh, got to, you know, we just shot out of a cannon and just kept going at full speed until it was done. Um, which in a lot of ways made a, you know, a really fun project. Oh, that you could um, take a picture of my face right now in the utter shock I'm sitting <laughs> in hearing a six-week time frame. I'm beyond impressed. That is amazing. To put yeah. it in perspective, Greg, Greg, how long did we do auditions for with, with Gargirls? Let's go with Gargirls. How long was the audition process before, from the time we started auditions to the time we were finally cast? Uh, well, I don't... I don't remember numbers, but I know that we cast uh, uh, a bunch of characters really quickly. Uh, Brooklyn, Lexington, But you're Broadway, correct. It took, it took over six months. You're right. Simona. But then we got hung up on Goliath and Elisa forever. Ever. Yeah. So um, Greg's right. It took uh, just over six months for the whole thing to be done. That said, there was some, like, you know, uh, like your uh, daughter, uh, Demona, I mean Angel. Um, you know, uh, there were some roles that were cast very quickly, very easily. But, I mean, Goliath, we were just really, it was such a great role and such amazing writing, um, despite Greg's influence. And uh, people were coming out of the woodwork, you know, wanting to, uh, uh, thanks for picking up on that wanting to uh, audition for it. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was so great that, you know, we were, I'll just say whatever, a little pent up ourselves about it. Um, but Elisa was the, you know, the really elusive one, really tricky one. Um, and uh, I think it ended up okay. It ended up with a decent cast. The point is, enough about me, uh, it normally takes a long time. So, for example, again, Gargoyles, a television series, uh, just over six months. Uh, Miyazaki's Spirited Away, which won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature that year. Uh, you know, whole thing. Cast, recorded, edited, mixed, six weeks. So, just to put it in perspective. Um, yeah. It was a challenging one, but it was fun. Really fun. Yeah, it sounds like it. So. Uh... I guess what I wanted to ask with that as well is like, uh, how do you feel it's been received? I guess because I mean, lots of people have seen the the Disney stuff, but the the anime thing is a whole different spectrum, and I think it's uh, definitely a, a great dub for especially six weeks worth of work. So, like, how do you feel? I guess how it's been received since then. Um, I feel like it's been received, uh, you know, pretty darn well. It's a remarkable film. I mean, Miyazaki's obviously, you know, um, a genius and remarkable in, in general. Um, but Spirited Away, 
uh, just visually, just turn the sound off and just look at it, you know, compared to whatever Princess Mononoke and Kiki's Delivery Service and some of those others. Um, it's just, a, you know, it's a visually sort of rich, stunning piece. Um, but then when you turn the sound on, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the story and, again, the sort of deep levels of uh, nuance uh, going on is, um, is uh, uncommon, not something that you see a lot of um, in uh, animated fair anime or otherwise. Um, the good news about anime, about dubbing uh, anime, is that uh, uh, <laughs> in animation in general, when it comes to dubbing, looping, um, you know, I uh, say uh, that the, the, the lip sync is how you say forgetting in uh, animation, as a, you know, compared to live action where the lip sync is, you know, very, very, very specific. But in anime, even more so, um, you guys probably know or may know, but not everybody knows um, that, uh, you know, in, in Western animation, we record the voices first, right? We record the voices and we edit them together and then we hand them to the animators and say, here, animate to this. In um, anime, it is uh, done uh, the other way around where they uh, animate it and then they put the voices in even in the original. So dubbing... Uh, anime into a foreign language is not entirely unlike the original voice recording for anime, which was also done after the visual. But because of that, um, stylistically in anime, there are very, very few mouth positions. Um, you know, sort of uh, open, closed, O, wide open, that, you know, there's just, I, I can't remember the number, but it's a very so small number of mouth positions, as opposed to in Western animation where the mouth positions well, if it's television, they're assigned. But if it's, you know, feature animation, it's, you know, infinite. Everything's animated specifically to the symbols that the actors speak. Does that make sense? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Mouth positions, lip flap, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, no, I... Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. I was in anime club when I was in high, high school. There you um, go. It away is one of my absolute favorite things. Uh, I mean, the Studio Ghibli in general. So when I read that in your repertoire and Sam so kindly brought it up, I'm like, don't fangirl everywhere. Don't fangirl everywhere. Don't <laughs> <laughs> you know, you fangirl all you want. <laughs> no, I, well, I wanted to ask because I've been into anime probably just as long as Kirsten has. And I also know a lot of the people in the industry in the UK. So it's, it's just distributing. No real dubbing here, but... It, I find it fascinating how you you know you, you're, you're translating another person's work in a medium, and and that's so different. Again, like you, you're one of the red directors that have done that for prelay and for I guess postlay. Effectively, I'm probably using the wrong term here, but I just find it really interesting, and I was, I just wanted to know your experience on it because you're one of the few people who who would have had that experience. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I've done I've done a few. The anime projects over the years, but um, that one is a was a very particular experience because of the very unique, um, uh, we'll call it production schedule situation. Having to do it, having to do something that sort of um, big and uh, uh, whatever, dare I say, important feeling anyway, um, it felt like an important piece to do it, uh, you know, in a fraction of the time that you would normally do. Uh, 
you know, television episode for that matter, um, was, uh, it was, uh, it, made, it just made a very, very particular experience that ultimately was, you know, awesome. I mean, it, you know, do you guys like it? Think it turned out okay? I, like I said, giant fangirl all over the place, <laughs> everywhere. I even have spirited away pajama bottoms and a t-shirt, okay? <laughs> nice, nice. And, 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 and I, appreciate, I appreciate that you're wearing them right now. Oh, yes, <laughs> actually, I am. <laughs> I that. that escalated so, quickly. Uh, <laughs> so for the remainder of the interview, everybody, um, she'll do all the talking. And here I was about to, to hand the microphone over to Zach. Uh, yeah, no kidding. No Zach, kidding. you ask whatever question she wants you to. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, back to, so back to Spectacular Spider-Man. Um, when it came to, to the voice direction overall... Is there a specific is there specific things that Greg that you asked each other to do whether it be in the writing and in the in the voice acting I know you guys uh, obviously Greg you're heavily involved with all portions of production but is there any like voice direction that like you knew this is how you wanted to do it or was it just on a episode by episode basis was there like a overall arcing with the series a certain way you wanted to direct it or did you just take it as it went Greg has the wisdom to always let me do exactly what I want without any input. Go ahead, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to every, every show that uh, Jamie and I have done together, we sit down before the recording, usually days before, um, and go. And we did it today for Young Justice uh, for. Um, a show we won't record for at least a week. Um, we sit down and go through every script line by line and talk about what's going on, both on the surface, behind the scenes, what it's leading to. I just try to give Jamie as much information as I can um, going into it, and then Jamie does his thing. Occasionally I'll ask for something different, and he'll say, and I let him say it once an episode, <laughs> once the recording, I let him say, okay, it's your show, just like that, which means I'm fucking it up, but... <laughs> yeah, to be clear, I don't say it nearly that kindly. And, and I don't... To be very, very fair, to be really fair, I only say it when he's wrong. I mean, obviously, I don't say it every time he's wrong, because I'd be saying it the whole time, but the only <laughs> one that's an egregious no um, again uh, Greg is the, uh, is the Miyazaki of uh, American uh, television animation at least um, oh that's high praise getting, getting, getting yeah, that's, that's, that I'm, makes me uncomfortable I'm, I'm loath I'm I'm to say <laughs> as Greg can confirm I'm internet to, will uh, hate me for that you say, <laughs> I'm the idiot who said it, though, not Greg. Greg paid me to say it, but I wouldn't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's the idiot that said that. And that's what I like about Greg. So, uh, <laughs> go ahead. We... All right, and I think it, if there are no other questions, I've got one more. What are some of your favorite behind-the-scenes stories that involve um executive, shall we say, interference. There's one story you told at a convention once about 
John, and it's not spectacular Spider-Man related. I do apologize, but about Jonathan Frakes and um, being released and then unreleased. And I does that sort of thing happen often? You had to get that in there, didn't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he is definitely asking you, Greg. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, uh, well, this wasn't. That's not executive interference. Um, so I'm not sure what you're asking. Um, yeah, there was a point on Gargoyles where um, we had had one really bad recording session. It wasn't at our regular uh, recording studio, which at the time was a place called Screen Music. It was at a place called Fidelity. It was on the weekend. We had tremendous problems with the air conditioner on a very, very hot day. The air conditioner was not on, and our cast was almost literally melting. Um, and so a guy came, was called in to turn it on, and he was so annoyed that he didn't simply turn on the air conditioning. He cranked it all the way up. So then our cast was freezing to death. Um, and the recording in general was not a great day. We didn't get a lot of good stuff that day. And the difference was is that every other actor that day had been in the first episode. This was episode two. And um, Jonathan was the new element. And so uh, people became convinced, I think wrongly, I know wrongly, that the problem was Jonathan when the problem had nothing to do with Jonathan. He wasn't great that day, but nobody was because of it was just ridiculous conditions on a weekend, it was awful. Um, and we recast the part of Xanatos briefly um, with a guy who was incredibly talented, but just not right for it. He sounded too old. He wasn't the guy we um, wanted Xanatos to be. Um, that was after we also tried a, another guy in between who had been a runner-up to Jonathan for the role, um, and he had been even uh, more problematic. So we'd been through three actors, including Jonathan, and I became convinced that we hadn't given Jonathan a fair shake and that we needed to bring him back. And so we did. And the rest is history. Um, and the only sort of executive thing there is that um, there was some question about uh, whether we should spend the money because we'd have to re-record everything that the third actor had done, which was by that time three or four episodes, and pay Jonathan to do those episodes. Um, and there was an executive who was reluctant to uh, spend that money, but our boss, Gary Kreisel, overruled him. So it's not really ex that specifically isn't an example of executive inner at all. God knows there's, we've had plenty of that over the years, but I wouldn't call that an example of it. That was an overall mess that we straightened out. All right. And um, before we go, I believe Samuel has one more question left for each of you. Yeah, uh, sorry. Um, so we, we talked about um, casting for Gargoyles. I'm wondering who was the hardest character to cast in Spec Spider Man, uh, either from both seasons or just overall? You know, that was funny because um, that was an incredibly easy show to cast as it turned yeah, out Spider-Man. Really we didn't think it would be. 
Um, but we, uh, I remember, we, you know, we went through the audition process and the callback process, and then Jamie uh, and Vic Cook and I sat down to go through our picks. And I went, and because we had a meeting that day with not just us, but with Sony executives and uh, Marvel, Marvel executives, and big room, like 20 people, and we went through our choices, and I went into that room totally prepared for a fight. You know, we felt very strongly that Josh should play Spider-Man, etc. And we went, and I went in armed for bear, you know, to fight for these guys. And um, so the meeting started, and they said to us, uh, who's your first choice for Spider-Man? And I, I said, Josh Keaton, and I practically had my sister. Exactly. And they were like, yeah, Josh is our first choice, too. <laughs> and it, it was, you know, it's one of those sitcom moments where I had to like reset my brain. Um, and this happened on character after character: Deborah Strang for Aunt May, um, Ben Diskin for Eddie Brock slash Venom, um, Vanessa Marshall, uh, Vanessa Marshall for Mary Jane, Lacey Chabert for Gwen Stacy. The only one where I didn't get my first choice was uh, Norman Osborn, but they they wanted my second choice, and they were both great, so it was hard to argue. And, of course, we wound up with Alan Rachins as Norman, and he was fantastic. So he really was. There was literally none of the regulars were hard to cast at all. And then, of course, after you go through that audition process, everything else is just me and Jamie, basically, sometimes Vic, just going... Well, who can we get? You know, who who's the character? What are we looking for? Uh, who's available? Um, you know, sometimes there are availability issues that force you to not take your first choice because that actor's not available. But you know, we just had a wonderful group of uh, actors on every level. Level: Steve Bloom, uh, John DiMaggio, we talked about today. Darren Norris, we talked about. Um, Phil Lamar was fantastic in multiple roles. Uh, Josh Labar was Josh Labar. Josh Labar is Flash. Fantastic. He made, he made me laugh Pacino every episode. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, it, you know, Fish is, is just great in that show. Um, and Great Elisle, Sally Avril still makes me laugh every time I watch yep. the show. Um so good. Uh, it's just, it it was a, that one was easy. I mean, Gargoyles, we had some easy parts and just some really, really difficult parts, but we never had that problem on Spider-Man. It's all, that, casting on Spider-Man was pretty damn easy. It was an embarrassment of riches, if anything. I mean, there were people that, you know, there were roles where we had, because technically you go into the meeting with, you know, your top three choices. And all three of them were great. And so, you know, we went with our first choice for that given role, but then those people ended up coming back into the show in other, you know, roles, the second and third choices for some of them. It was, yeah, it was probably, of all the shows we've done, probably the easiest one to cast, if I think about it. Yeah. And the cast was perfect. And what you said about Alan Rachens there, I mean, he was phenomenal. He's my favorite version of Norman Osborn to date, still. 
Yeah, I think Alan was terrific. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, it's embarrassing to admit he wasn't my first choice. But the fact <laughs> is, is that he was a very close second for me in the audition process, and I'm so glad that they, uh, that uh, the various executives pushed us to take him because he was great, really great. Um, and uh, everybody else was our first choice, Jamie. I, I think literally from, you know, all the way down the line, everyone else was exactly who we wanted for our first choice. It was the biggest non-battle of my career. <laughs> and Greg's not uh, overstating it when he says, you know, he went in there, fists clenched, veins popping out of his neck, face slightly reddened before he, you know, even said, yes, this. Oh, you agree with me? Okay, good. <laughs> Next. <laughs> well, we, we, who's your first choice? My first choice is, is uh, you know, whoever. Feel in the blank. <laughs> nice. And, nice. So, and just to kind of wrap it up on the final bit, so it, it, this is about the Sandman. So, Greg, you mentioned you had other plans for the Sandman. I'm just kind of wondering, would he have gone down a more heroic route, or would he have gone back to being a villain? Or who knows? Well, I mean, as, as always, I am uh, disinclined to reveal future plans. I've learned the hard way that uh, there's no uh, profit in it for me, and I don't mean money. I, it's just that on the one hand, um, you never know when something will come back. Uh, I'm doing Young Justice after five years uh, of so it being away. And, looking forward to and it. that's a and B, uh, I also have found uh, to my dismay often that, you know, when you reveal your ideas minus their execution, it just really opens you up on this thing called the Internet to uh, all sorts of <laughs> second-guessing no, no, and attack um, because, you know, uh, I'm totally willing to stand by the work that's done, but it's really hard to defend something I didn't get a chance to do. Um, and I don't want to be in that business. So um, I'm not going to reveal future plans. Happy always to talk about what we did and why we did it. But um, as always, I'm, I stopped doing the future plan thing. I learned that the hard way on gargoyles years and years ago. All right. Well, I think that about. Who's in yeah, the I think wind we tunnel? Need to... Yeah, that's me. All right. Let's wrap that up. Uh, guys, yeah. uh, why don't you pip your, uh, what you got going on, respectively? All right. Well, I'll start. Uh, the second book in my World of Warcraft series, The Spiral Path, um, that is World of Warcraft Traveler. Book two, The Spiral Path, comes out uh, late this month. I think February 27th is the release date. You can also pick up the previous novel, World of Warcraft Traveler. Read the first and second book in, in that what in that ongoing series. Um, and then uh, you can also read my other two novels, my original property, Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam. Uh, Young Justice, the third season, uh, is launching in the fall. We don't have an exact release date yet, but it'll be sometime this fall. Um, the... Uh, that's pretty much all I've got all going right. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Well, 
uh, just so a couple things just to wrap up on this particular episode, though. I do want to make a point of giving some credit to Kevin Hobbs and Kevin Altieri, the writer and director, respectively, of those episodes. Fantastic. Of course, to, of course, to Vic Cook, um, my partner on the show. Um, Jamie and I had a lot of fun, and we had a great cast. But honestly, we we couldn't have done it just the two of us. So uh, um, I, I do want to give credit where credits due, at least to those guys and of course Sean Galloway our great character designer because uh, uh, again just make sure they're included in the whole thing yeah it can't be it can't be overstated I mean the, uh, those guys were awesome I mean they always are I mean how many characters did Galloway himself uh, design for this series it's like a crazy number yeah I have no yeah. idea I mean I never counted more than a six. lot yeah, a lot. <laughs> nice. And Jamie, do you have anything you want to promote while you're here? Greg's new book. And, uh, yeah, no, um, I'm working on three different movies and uh, two different television series, all of which are under an NDA, so I can't tell you what any of them are, but they're all really good. I, <laughs> well, you look forward to seeing when they come out. I, I look forward to seeing what it's going to be, but this lady has to bow out. So you gents have a great night. You and your pajamas go uh, kiss your angel daughter. <laughs> I absolutely will. <laughs> All right. Good. Bye, Kristen. Bye, guys. And I, on a personal note, I just want to say I thought this was a great recording. I'm a great interview. I'm glad we got to talk with you, Jamie. It was something I've been wanting to do since day one, and I'm glad we finally had the chance to do it. And um, I look forward to your collaboration on Young Justice Season 3, hopefully this coming fall, like Greg said, and I look forward to all future collaborations between you two. May there be many more. Awesome. Agreed. Your lips. Thank yeah. you. All right. Thanks, thank you. guys. Thank you, and thank you all for joining us. And, hey, Greg. Join, and join us next month, next time, I'm not going to commit to a month, for uh, Colonel Jupiter. think I could be a hero like you? Well, yeah. I, I mean, with great power comes great... Gullibility!